This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Turns out, sometimes you don't have to open your show with a bit. Sometimes you can just open the show. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. And that's it. That's... You don't always have a bit. Nope. And rare, even when we think we do, rarely is it a good one. Um, mm. We are going to talk about a book this week like we do every week on the show. Um, one of us has read it. They're going to talk to you and the other person about it. Uh, Andrew, what did you... <laughs> read i read the book native son by the author richard wright sure uh thanks to patreon supporter rosalind for recommending this book to us find out more about how you can do that at patreon.com do you have her do you have her message pulled up like i i don't know to know what her i never sometimes i think to do that let me see sometimes i feel like sometimes i'm more interested in knowing what people wanted us to see in the book or what they <laughs> no i'm not that sounds okay that sounds really disparaging no not, no no like no. complimentary of the book <laughs> sometimes i sometimes it is fully 100 percent obvious from the book what people wanted us to talk about and notice about it and sometimes there's a lot of stuff going on and so i'm curious to know if she had any particular angle that she was no it was just okay. on a list of options and this one fit us the best slash had not already been taken nice okay so, i don't Good. have no th- that was a fruitless detour <laughs> well no it's not fruitless because we are a minute closer to the end of the podcast <laughs> so um what do we know about Richard Wright? Uh, he was born in 1908, and he passed away in 1960. Uh, he was born at Rucker's Plantation outside Roxy, Mississippi. Um, at, he's in that generation of folks whose parents were born free after the Civil War, uh, but both of his grandparents were, bo- all of his grandparents, I believe, were born into slavery and then like freed from the war. I think his grandfather served in the Union Army. Mm-hmm. Um, it's my understanding that he... A lot of this stuff from the early part of his life is covered in a memoir that a lot of people have, like, when they saw us reading this book, mentioned his book, Black Boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people have have read that. So if we're ever going to circle back to Richard Wright, I think that's where we go. Native Son is one of those books that I am glad to have read, but uh-huh. it is harder to talk about in the context of our show because there is not a lot of, like, goof holds there's not like no to to make light of it feels too much like discounting it and sure. like not taking the the themes of it seriously enough and i yes. don't want us to be in that position no I <laughs> even though that's either. the normal place where our podcast operates so it's like it's it's not the kind of overdue episode that comes the most easily to me <laughs> no that's reasonable that's yeah. reasonable but i think covered in black boy includes like his father leaving when he was young, um, 
he and his mom and the rest of their family moving around like they moved to Arkansas. Uh, he had an uncle killed by a white man, I think, over like a saloon business. Um, uh, his mom suffered a stroke, so they moved in with other relatives in Mississippi. Um, all of this like preventing right from like finishing a year of school at all until he mm-hmm. was like 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, they were living with some, uh, grandparents that he did not get along with because of their, their particular religious background and very strict. Um, so all of that, uh, informs where he's kind of coming from. He publishes his first story, the voodoo of half acre in eighth grade, publishes it in a newspaper moves, uh, to Tennessee and then later to Chicago with the rest of his family as part of the Great Migration, which we've talked about on previous podcasts. People moving north to get away from Jim Crow and seek mm-hmm. other economic opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after he lost his like postal job in the Great Depression, he started attending meetings with something called the John Reed Club, which then introduced him to other Communist Party activities, which I think factors heavily into this book, or at least it is mentioned. Does. Yeah, and then then there's in the back of the edition I read, which is the the Kindle version of Native Son, which unfortunately the reviews on Amazon, and then I noticed this as I was reading too. I think there are kind of a bunch of like OCR typos. Oh, weird. In this, yeah, like I think it needs a it needs a proofread, so it doesn't like ruin it. But if, it does, if you're it listening, whoever's responsible. Well, no, I'm just like if you if you buy it and read it, know that the ebook version is is not probably the best version. Sure, of it. but there is a small essay in the back of this by right called "How Bigger Was Born" that mm. um has some additional like autobiographical tidbits and then some stuff about um how how bigger his his plight fits in with communism and some views on like the rise of fascism and stuff even like he he has a bit where um there is like he heard some black folks talk about I don't think admiring like Hitler and Mussolini is the right term, but they saw them as people who like got things done. Oh, I've heard that quote. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think you can see some parallels to, to this in our current political environment where the the system is broken in some way and you are not like there is no clear pathway to like doing something about it. And so you gravitate toward people who seem to be able to, who who like build a reputation for themselves as people who can change things. There's an allure and of the strong you, man. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then sometimes you, you disregard the negative effects of, of whatever that change yes. is. Oh yeah. But yeah. Um, so yeah, he, he is palling around with communists in the thirties writing for, <laughs> Uh, he's the Harlem editor of a communist newspaper after he moves to New York. In both places, he does run into, like, you know, white labor unions discriminating against new members and kind of other internal racial strife. Um, he does meet Ralph Ellison, who we have talked about on the show before, The Invisible Man. That book is by him. Uh, and then I think Wright's first like notable work is Uncle Tom's Children, which was a collection of four short stories, you know, some of them based on lynching in the South. I think that was published in 1938. In 1940, he starts working on Native Son. Uh, he gets a, Gu- a Guggenheim Fellowship. And then this is published as the first book of the month club book by a black author, hmm. which led it to like selling like gangbusters for, for a while. Um, 
And we will talk more about, I think, the reception to it when we get into what the book is, because folks like James Baldwin and others critiqued the work pretty publicly, um, while a lot of people were like, whoa, that's some bracing storytelling, and I've never read anything like that before. Yeah, and I can definitely see both both points of view. So let me know when, I guess, I or I can let you know when the most like comfortable sure. place to bring that up is. <laughs> but yeah, there are a few different layers to talk about the book. There's like, here's what actually happens. There's like, here's here are the points that Wright wants to get across and like the political things that he is saying. Mm-hmm. And then here is how those two things interact. Like here's how it... While getting these points across, here's where it does or does not succeed as succeed as a work of like literature or fiction. Totally, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then just to wrap up his bio, so that we can get on to the next section of the show. Uh, Nineteen forty-five is when Black Boy is published. Um, there's a second half of that called American Hunger that was published posthumously and gets now gets published or at least was published as like a joint edition. Um, and then he moves to France in the mid 1940s, I think 46 after World War II is over. Seems reasonable. Uh, and what is it about the way that we treat <laughs> black people in America that makes them want to leave can't, and live somewhere else? Can't weird. imagine. It's so weird. Why that would be the case. Uh, <laughs> and he becomes friends with like Sartre and Camus and some other people out there doing French existentialism. It feels like like author fan fiction. Like it all does. My, all my favorite. <laughs> All my favorite political writers are all hanging out, getting real, um, that, <laughs> real world. What, that, would, what would a version of real world with Camus oh and my Richard Wright be? Well, I think actually uh, Sartre's No Exit, right? That's Sartre. Oh, sure. That basically is yeah. the original real world. Ooh, it is. Um, all these people are going to hell and it's time to get real. <laughs> Uh, while he's in France, he also meets James Baldwin, who we mentioned before. They're good buds until Baldwin starts uh, digging on Native Son, among other things. Um, and then he was traveling the world. There's some stuff I wasn't able to parse about whether or not he was informing for the U.S. government. So if anyone knows more about that, wants to like tell me a story, please write in, because I would hmm. love to know more. Um, he then suffered a heart attack in 1960, which unfortunately led to his passing. Um, a couple of his books were updated in the early 90s, uh, including this one. It had a like reference to masturbation like put back in the book. Um, and then one other book was published for the first time after, after he died. Um, it, it's really... That also speaks to something uniquely American where like yep. all this really, really heavy stuff about race relations is fine, but yep. you can't have somebody masturbating in a movie theater. Yeah, as like, like a teen or something. And it mm-hmm. and there's an interesting essay I found about it where from like an LA Times article in the early nineties where it talks about like it's a revealing moment later when a cop tells the main character that he knew about that incident and it like proves to him how much the state is willing to stack against him about like his own past and even minute details yeah and and then it's not just that but it's also like this is that comes during a section where they're also trying to pin a bunch of different like murders and and things on him that he didn't do Mm -hmm. and so he's being hit with stuff he didn't do but also surprisingly granular true information about stuff that he not just stuff that he did but like stuff that he had planned to do like yeah. ro- like to rob a, a white convenience store that he didn't actually 
he and his friends didn't actually get up the nerve to, oh, to okay. accomplish. So yeah, it's it's yeah. <laughs> Um, and he did. He was married twice, and his second wife, uh, Ellen Poplar, was another communist organizer. They had two daughters, and she was the executor of his state for a good long time. Um, I should be clear: the thing that we were just talking about was about the Baker main character in the book, yes. and not things that Richard, Richard Wright, Wright did. did. Yes, <laughs> it was a character from the book. Um, so yeah, which you could uh, get confused because some of his work was quite autobiographical. Um, let's take a quick break, Andrew, and then I want to know more about the book. Yeah. It's 2019, Andrew. Do you have your digital life in order? I'd like to think so. Is is it in a place where everyone can find it publicly? Most of it. <laughs> I think probably more of it than I would like, actually. Is it spread across multiple services, or have you created one home, one easy home for it? I think it's the first one. It's spread out across a lot of stuff. Well, then you should talk to our friends at Squarespace. Uh, Squarespace has helped bring this episode to you, and they will help bring you to the internet. Um, Squarespace (laughs) is a website that helps you make beautiful websites where you can turn your cool idea uh, into a digital homepage. You can showcase your work. You can blog or publish content. You could sell stuff if you wanted. That could be cool. And they'll help you by giving you beautiful templates created by world-class designers. Uh, It's all optimized for mobile right out of the gate. They've got built-in search engine optimization. And there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. They've got it taken care of. You got to patch you. and upgrade everything in your life these days. It's true. Your thermostat, your phone, your clothes, your, <laughs> your speakers. <laughs> Andrew, we use Squarespace for our website, and we it's do. a dream. It it's, is. I. It's actually very real, and we use it like every day. Actually, um, the the amount that I barely think about our website when I'm not actively updating it is kind of great. Like I don't have to worry about maintaining it at all because it just goes. Yes, that's true. So if you, the listener would like to make your presence known on the internet, you need to go to squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. And when you are ready to launch, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain That's squarespace.com slash overdue. Make yourself digital in 2019. So you, we were clarifying before the break that this book is not about Richard Wright. Who is it about, Andrew? About this fellow named Bigger Thomas. Okay. Bigger is not short for anything like (laughs) biggest or Bigston. It's just bigger. Okay. Um, Bigger Thomas is a 20-year-old black man who's living in Chicago in uh, the 30s. This book was published in 1940. Um, So this is published in... um, It's not really... Like, there are oblique references to, like, the rise of fascism in Europe and stuff. So it's kind of World War II adjacent. It's written in the present, basically. It's not like even... Yeah. Right. But the book's, like, not about that. Okay. Okay. so Bigger Thomas is living in this one room apartment with his mother and his younger sister and his younger brother. They don't have a lot of money. And he has been offered this job by a rich white guy who likes to think of himself as a as a philanthropist and like an ally to to black folks. Like he's giving a lot to charities and to um like the the Y and to places that that help disadvantaged people, which is 
sure it sounds good but it's not always great for reasons we can talk about a little bit later um but bigger is very conflicted about having to take this job because he just he like doesn't want to do it <laughs> okay. he is always like his he feels like his mother is always badgering him and and like using religion as a as a like a club to guilt trip him into doing okay. things um like he realizes that this is a thing he needs to do, but he doesn't like what he wants to do is hang out with his pals and go to the movies. Sometimes he like he looks up in the in the sky in the early part of the book and he entertains this idea of like, oh, I'd like to be a pilot, but there's really no path for him to mm. travel to like become a pilot. So you get a sense very early on of him being sort of stuck in this in this place that where he doesn't he's not comfortable sure is are is his family like was he born in chicago did his parent did his family move or is that just not explored you know i think they bring it up a little bit later i feel like he may may have been born in the south and then moved up i think in that sense it is a little autobiographical but it's not like he he just like rolled in last year and no no no, no. they've they've okay. been living up there for for as long as is, is important to okay the, cool. to the story I think um, yeah right in the um, in the essay about how bigger was born talks about all the all the people who he met who like eventually became bigger Thomas and yeah it's a lot of people who he knew in like the Jim Crow era in the South but then he also got a lot of ideas once he had moved up to Chicago. And that's kind of where the, the character came together for him. And okay. we can talk about that in a little bit too. But, um, so he is, he has been hired by the Daltons, uh, which is the rich, rich white family. Before you see that happen, you get, um, you get a bit with him and his friends where they're thinking about like, so the the family is going to get thrown off of public assistance because Bigger has gotten this job. Like this has happened through kind of official channels, I guess, because the because Mr. Dalton tries to find specific people who he thinks he can help by giving them a job and helping them go to school and you know lifting them out of out of poverty one at a time, which is is a great way to make yourself feel better, I guess, without necessarily addressing the systemic problems that leads to this kind of poverty and segregation in the first place. Sure. Um, but we get a bit with him, with Bigger and some of his friends, his black friends thinking about holding up like this white deli or convenience store, some small like corner store, but it is owned by a white person. And they have done this kind of stuff before, but they've done it to the few like black store owners who are in the neighborhood and that comes with less risk because just the police care less about crimes that black people do to one another in the, yeah, yeah. Know, in the context of the book. And I, I think in the context of real life still, and it I sounds really like, want to, yeah, go it ahead. sounds like you're, you are pointing out that the book is like painting this as a, it is the first time they've ever done this. And it is like, they recognize the import of, the potential consequences yeah 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 okay um but bigger just has this has this like restlessness and and unease and like all of this hate and fear like built up inside of him that occasionally gets to this like boiling point where 
he almost isn't like in control of himself or there's like a certain inevitability to his to his actions like the the book is split up into three um i guess books like yeah know, sure like, yeah uh, but book book one life. is called fear book two is called flight book three is called fate so book one is all about not just bigger's fear of like these white folks that he's gone to work for not just fear of the consequences of things that he does but also fear of other black folks and of like showing weakness in front of them like he almost kills one of his friends because because his friend is uneasy about doing this and bigger also is uneasy about doing it but like seeing his friend be scared about it makes him feel bad about being scared about it yeah okay so he he that manifests itself as them getting in a really big physical altercation that is very very close to that ends up very very close to murder are you like Um, in bigger's head or okay okay Mm -hmm. um it's not first person but But it's real dang close super close third person and you don't get other perspectives it's all over a bigger shoulder the whole time i'm just i was just like ruminating on you saying that like it feels like it's like a it's boiling in him and i'm wondering like how right is showing that but it sounds like it's kind of because it's almost internal like you just kind of know yeah like you're okay so this is him talking to one of his one of his friends um I know I oughtn't think about it, but I can't help it. Every time I think about it, I feel like someone's poking a red hot iron down my throat. God damn it. Look, we live here and they live there. We black and they white. They got things and we ain't. They do things and we can't. It's just like living in jail. Half the time I feel like I'm on the outside of the world peeping in through a knothole in the fence. And this is talking about the um, the segregation between the black and the white neighborhoods, which mm-hmm. is because they're, they're in the north. So it's not like these things are enshrined into law always necessarily though i think you said you did a little bit of research I, on on housing segregation I and, did, like, and, and redlining and stuff yeah um my own ignorance i would not have been able to tell you that the national housing act of 1934 is basically what created redlining so lo and behold andrew they passed something in the new deal which is supposed to make home ownership more affordable lo and behold a bunch of people ruin it for Anyone who's not white. Um, the, act estab- the act establishes the Federal Housing Administration um, and the Federal Home Loan Bank Board ask this organization called the Homeowners Loan Corporation to look at 239 cities and create residential security maps to get a sense of how secure lending would be in each area. Neato. Uh, redlining happened when they took their lowest level, A through D, they would draw it around like whole neighborhoods that were disproportionately black and say, like, don't give these people money. They're never going to be able to pay the government back. Like, don't don't do this. Um, and so it has a knock on effect of like leading to community disinvestment. And it's had a generational effect of like systemic poverty. Um, and it was redlining was technically outlawed with, I guess, what was the Fair Housing Act in the 60s? Um, but its effects are still going like we didn't we got rid of the mechanism the explicit mechanism but we didn't address all of the problems well i still think you can um something that that people did i think after the 2016 election was if you if you look at 
areas in cities where what like there are fewer polling locations or something mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you can you can put that up next to a redlined map yes. from this era and still see like a ton of overlap yeah there's a study um, there's a study by the ncrc which i think is the national community redevelopment commission i don't i might get that wrong but that's close um and they they did a study on like family income and and family wealth today based on all of those neighborhoods that were redlined in the 30s and it completely maps to the wealth gap um Mm -hmm. with very few exceptions um so like even though again even though it was outlawed like 30 years later it's still creating immediate problems for folks like bigger thomas and it's creating immediate problems for people in 2018 and so yeah at a at a high level what you're seeing in the in the area bigger lives in is like a redlined neighborhood there there is simultaneously a housing crunch but also a ton of huge buildings just rotting with nobody living in them cool because because people aren't investing in those neighborhoods and so you get not just like the legal end of it but also a more informal end of it where people in the, in the black neighborhoods are charged more to live in the same or like worse apartments as as folks yeah, in the white yeah. area they have to pay a little bit more for food and for for services and it's kind of a an informal like this is just the way things are done. This is just the this, this is just what's customary. Um, that's how it's that's how it's set up in the in the book as like a tenants' rights issue, um, kind of thing. Well, and all of the soft forces being being applied to people. Yeah, yeah. It's well, it's 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 yeah. It's not necessarily enshrined into law always, but it is it is practiced and it is agreed upon i guess that that people who rent apartments in this area of the of the city so the so mr dalton who bigger works for owns a company that owns a controlling share in the company (laughs) where bigger's family lives okay and there this is getting ahead of things a little bit there's a scene in in court toward the end of the book where um, Bigger's lawyer is asking Mr. Dalton, like, why couldn't you, like, if you want to help disadvantaged people so much, then why don't you just lower the rents on the, on the apartments that you, that you let in this part of town? And, and Mr. Dalton's like, well, it's just the, it's just the way things are done. Like, it's just, Neat. you know, it's not done. So that's fun. That's a thing. Oh, man. That was, a, that was just watching an episode of One Day at a Time that was addressing that very issue about, like, whether or not the owner of a building who could see the moral cost of what they were doing would would uh would take action or not interesting and i'm Mm. sure because one day at a time really wants to make people think but also feel good that maybe there was some kind of equitable solution yeah the was reached yes he he chose the paragon option of that interaction (laughs) and got the good person points Right. Um, which is sounds like is not necessarily what happened to Mr. Dalton. Uh, n- not necessarily. He's, <laughs> you know. So, there, so, like, so it's interesting that, that there are there are a few different kinds of, of white people depicted in this book. And while a lot of them think they're they're helping in some ways like that. So, so Mr. Dalton's deal is that he is he and his wife are treating symptoms without treating the, you know, the actual disease. Yep. Um, There is 
Man, all right. So I should just get back to the plot of the yeah, book. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. bigger bigger goes like he has this whole altercation and this whole thing like gives you a glimpse at Bigger's like inner life and so you know that he is going to go and he's going to take this job but also probably things are not going to go super great. Mhm. So he gets to the Dalton's home and he is their lives are so different from his, like the way they live is so different from him that he feels I guess kind of shame, embarrassment, like a little bit of, of timidity. Like he just doesn't know how to act. And so he's totally uncomfortable and unmoored in this situation. So Mr. Dalton is interviewing him and then Mr. Dalton's daughter, Mary comes in and she's like 22. She's politically active and she starts asking bigger all these questions about like whether he's in a union and would he like to be in in a union and bigger is like i haven't i like i don't know what you're talking about he's he's just trying to ignore her so she stops asking him all these questions that are making him super uncomfortable because he feels kind of like it's making him blow the interview in in mr dalton's eyes Mm. so mary's deal and we we were introduced to her in the movie theater scene, she is like in a little newsreel before because she's a local socialite. And I guess that's just what you would newsreels do? were <laughs> like about. Like an Instagram when it, story? When it wasn't about like beating the Nazis, <laughs> it was about local socialites. So. <laughs> like local rich girl cuts a ribbon somewhere, I suppose. Yeah, but she's she has ties to communists, which is noteworthy. In part because we're kind of getting into a Red Scare era and communism is a bad word in, sure. in, in American politics at this point. But also because her father is very capitalist. He's extremely capitalist. He owns all these companies that own companies and he rents a, he owns a bunch of property in the city and he has all this money and it's, it's the whole thing. Okay. So Bigger's first job is to drive Mary to school in the evening for an event. But she tells him, no, we're going to go somewhere else. So they pick up this guy named Jan, who is a local Communist Party leader who Mary is seeing. And they both do this whole thing where they're trying to get bigger to stop like yesuming and knowing mm, mm-hmm. them and trying to convey to him like, oh, we're, you know, we just want we want everybody to be equal. We're your friend. Like why, you know, trying to get him to see that they're good people and that's making him even more uncomfortable. And then they go on this, this whole thing where they say, you know, drive us, drive us through your neighborhood. Like we want to, we want to go eat at a place where you would eat. And we want to, you know, we want to see what life is like for you. So this is Mary talking to bigger as they, as they drive, uh, you know, Bigger, I've long wanted to go into these houses, she said, pointing to the, dull, the tall, dark apartment buildings looming to either side of them, and just see how your people live. You know what I mean? I've been to England, France, and Mexico, but I don't know how people live 10 blocks from me. We know so little about each other. I just want to see. I want to know these people. Never in my life have I been inside of a Negro home. Yet they must live like we live. They're human. There are 12 million of them. They live in our country in the same city with us. Her voice trailed off wistfully. So it's very, you know, it's it's well intentioned, yeah, sure, but also totally horrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, it's, she she doesn't know just how far off the mark she is. 
Yeah, in how she is speaking to the person right in front of her, because there is right. a, there is an essential truth in the like we don't know our neighbors, we are we are all like in this together, and we should be helping each other, and it's wild that we don't. And extent, you know, if I'm a good person, I think I'm a good person. Why don't I have this information, and why haven't I sought it out? But to drop it that way just feels bad and as you've been saying like is only going to put him on the spot more well and she's sort and she's sort of equating it to tourism too like yeah you know, i've bad. been to england and france and mexico oh, and i've oh, seen no. i've seen how people live you know i just want to see how how people live nearby to me Ugh. and yeah and on a personal level because we are in bigger's head he has no context for oh, sure. a white person talking to him like this and he just wants it to end like he he is he is often frustrated by and often hates, you know, the, the way that that white people have everything and black people don't and and, you know, his his lot in life. But he neither does he does that mean that he just wants people to be like trying to shake his hand and talk to him and eat at his, you know, eat at his diner in his neighborhood. Like that's not it's not something he has any context for. And his his reaction is to be upset about it. OK. Which is understandable, I think. The, the The thing that the book does, I think, the most successfully in in the first book is like, I you rarely want bigger to be doing the things that he's doing, sure, because he ends up doing some pretty bad stuff. But also, Wright, I think, is pretty good at conveying to you, the reader, why it's happening that way. Yes, sure. Um, As I understand it, and this is a quote I think from the from the bigger Thomas, the the built what is it the making bigger, writing bigger. What is the essay? How bigger was born? How bigger was born? Excuse me. Making making, making bigger. bigger. Um, <laughs> that's my new childcare book. Um, I wish I was making bigger. them bigger. This, the um, sequel to the movie Big. I think he <laughs> called it. Um, a book so oh this is the quote i had written a book of short stories which was published under the title of uncle tom's children when the reviews of that book began to appear i realized i had made an awfully naive mistake i found that i had written a book which even bankers daughters could read and weep over and feel good about i swore to myself that if i ever wrote another book no one would weep over it that it would be so hard and deep that they would have to face it without the consolation of tears oh boy so he like accidentally wrote the help <laughs> oh god <laughs> That's kind of what he's feeling. Like he's like, oh, it's this like, and those were, you know, some of those stories were about lynchings and how bad it is for folks in the South. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and his point being like, yeah, a bunch of people who were never going to encounter that read it and got sad. And that like doesn't, that's not why I wrote the book in the first place. So here, let me write this book where like a dude is going to get really pissed and have to deal with all the stuff that's, you know, stacked against him. And yet, maybe it's not gonna just move us to tears. It's either gonna make us mad or scared or oh, it makes whatever. Th- this book I was intensely uncomfortable reading. Okay, parts of okay. So what happens is Jan and and Mary and Bigard all drink and they're all driving around. And Jan wishes them farewell. He gets out of the car and he goes off on a trolley to some other place. Uh, bigger is driving Mary home. She is very drunk. He takes her up to her room 
and starts like, and she is totally out of it. He starts like kissing her, but before any other thing can happen, uh, Mary's mother, Mrs. Dalton, who is, who is blind, like, okay, you know, like literally blind comes into the room and is like, Mary, what's, what's going on? And bigger does not want to be found out in this situation because, you know, you know, <laughs> um, and Mary is, is very drunk, but she's trying to say something and bigger just, he doesn't want Mrs. Dalton to know he's there. So he's trying to, you know, keep her quiet and, in doing this, he like pushes a pillow down on her face and he pushes it and pushes it until she dies. And Mrs. Dalton, you know, smells the liquor on her breath and is like, Oh, she's drunk again. Great. And leaves. No. And then the, and then bigger realizes what he's done. And his first thoughts are, okay, how do I make this go away? Yeah. Ooh. So he has he has the inklings of some ideas to pin it on Jan because Jan's a communist and he knows that that the Dalton the Mr. and Mrs. Dalton really hate communists and communism. So he's like, Oh yeah, I've got a natural like enemy in these people and I can scapegoat him and it'll be fine. He is going to cause Mary had 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 plans to go to Detroit the next day. She had a trunk like partially packed. So Bigger's first thought is to pack her in the trunk and just drive her away. Oh man. But then she won't fit in the trunk and he's all nervous about it. So what he ends up doing is taking her down to the furnace, which he's been shown how to use. Um, and he stuffs her in it. Oh my God. And she won't fit all the way. Her head won't go in. And so he takes a knife and a hatchet and he takes her head off. Oh. And throws it into the throws it into the furnace. Oh my god! Yeah, and that's it was, awful. It was tough to read, yeah. and it's tough enough. Like maybe I don't even know if we want to put an explicit tag on this episode, or if we want to record a little thingy first. But it's really like disturbingly violent. Yeah, and um, so for a little while, like like Mary is is missing. Mrs. Dalton knows that she was home at a certain point, but she doesn't know what's happened beyond that. They ask Bigger what happened last night. Bigger says, you know, I was with Jan, this guy who gave me like communist literature and I didn't read it, but he'd seem shuffle shifty. And <laughs> oh my God, he like, he's the last, you know, I, I left he, him and Mary. So maybe he had something to do with it. And all the suspicion gets, gets thrown onto Jan People are, are investigating him. And then Bigger is like, well, I got I done got away clean with this one. That went well. So what I should do next is write a ransom note acting like someone's kidnapped Mary. And then I'll get a bunch of money and me and Bessie, my girl, can run away and live happily ever after. Does he come so, up with that idea like all by himself? He There's another there's like a similar situation that he had read about or heard about that he's. Like he he read some story about somebody being ransomed and asking the family to like throw the money off of a moving train so that it couldn't be like traced to him or something, right? Or, yeah. or like they they couldn't have people waiting to to ambush him and capture him. And so he you know thinking, oh, I'm I'm I am very smart. I've gotten away with this crime that I did. I pinned it on the red. The 
the evidence is like I'm I should probably clean the furnace, but like probably I'll get away with it. It's fine. Um, so Ooh. he does. He does. He he tells Bessie enough that she knows too much. Oh no! And then writes a ransom note, slides it under the door. The this is all attracting the notice of the press now at this point because Mary is she's is, in the movie reels. She's in the she's in the news reels. So of course the media is is interested in this. And while they're all you know Jan's in, in jail kind of trying to prove his alibi and trying to prove that he was not involved and having a little bit of trouble because even when he does produce people who are like, yeah, he was at this party when this, this whole thing supposedly happened, everybody's like, well, there's just a bunch of reds. And of course your red friends would lie for you. So I don't believe you. And it does look like bigger is kind of getting away with it. But then the furnace, like there's just so much ash in the furnace and it's not burning like it should. And while a bunch of the press people are standing around in like the boiler room, basically just waiting for a statement, um, bigger is told by one of the Dal- either one of the Daltons or the other, um, like the maid who's who's there to clean out the furnace because it's not as hot as it should be, and bigger is trying to open it up, like scoop ashes out of the way so that you know air can move through it again without totally emptying it because he doesn't know what's going to be in there. Um, Wait, but dude, then, he's doing all the ransom stuff and he's like still showing up for work? Yeah. Like he's around? Well, yeah, because he thinks it'll arouse suspicion if he doesn't show up. I mean, that's true. Yeah, but I mean, man. he's not like, he's not so like... No, I get it. It's not the perfect crime, this no. thing that he's done, because he's also taken money from Mary's purse and like thrown her purse away in a trash can not that far from his apartment. Like he's not doing great at crimes, but he's not doing the worst at crimes. Okay, okay. Um, until the furnace starts to smoke and some of the press people come over and like, man, let me help you with this. Like you are clearly having trouble. And they throw a bunch of ashes out on the floor. And what they find in the ashes are some little fragments of bone and an earring. Oh, God. And so Bigger runs. And this is book two. It's flight. This is Bigger running from the police and trying to hide. And in the process of doing this, Bessie, he tries to take with him. But she is crying and she's upset and she... It's like, man, I wish I wish I had never met you. Like, I hate you. This sucks. And so they go into an abandoned building and they're, you know, they're going to hide out for a little bit and then run away. And Bigger has sex with her. And mm-hmm. then he hits her in the head with a brick until she dies and then throws her down an air vent. Oh, my God. And okay. So this, is, this is, again, like, okay, Bigger, good job. You're, you're. You're getting rid of evidence and people who could weigh you down. But, oh, wait, Bigger, when you threw her down the air vent, you didn't take into account that all the money that you had was in her pocket. No. And so he's he's hiding and he's running and and you you again see him like doing smart things like I I don't want to hang out in a totally abandoned building. I want to ha- I want to hide out in like an unrented apartment in a building that's otherwise occupied because sure. people will be less. Does this section of the book, um, because he is now like, it's so, it sounds very plot driven in terms of like what he is up against. Are there still 
like notes of the initial part of the book that's really like laying out the way that a racist system is stacked against him like is he uh, is the book still like reminding you of that or are we really just tight on the crimes at no, this there, point there's there's still a lot of 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 inner monologue stuff from from bigger talking about like like when he does that stuff to bessie again you're getting a bunch of stuff from inside his head that's helping to justify all the stuff that okay. he's doing okay um but i'm i'm focusing tightly on plot no that's we fine that's need reasonable to get through all yeah, the yeah, plot yeah. stuff to to talk about the rest of it um and he's eventually caught okay yeah i was gonna ask um on the on the roof of a building and taken into custody and then he is jan comes in and so he and jan had another confrontation after jan was like let out of jail where jan comes up to him at the outside of the dalton's house and is like why are you like why are you trying to pin this on me like what did i ever do to you and bigger draws a gun on him and is like you leave me alone you get out of here so jan and this lawyer whose last name is max i don't remember his first name but they just call him max through the rest of the book come in and and say is he a communist lawyer Huh? He's a communist. He's a communist lawyer. lawyer. Okay. Yeah, okay. and he's also Jewish. Um, a lot of people in this book don't uh, don't love uh, communist Jews. Weird. Also weird. Weird. Also weird. Super weird. <sighs> um, and Jan is like, I really, I really cared about Mary, but I was in prison for a little bit, and I really do take like everybody being equal and everybody like working together seriously and so i'm like this is this is kind of a genuine moment of of connection where jan is like somebody has to like break this cycle okay okay of like bloodshed and of of blame and of of awfulness and like i i don't like what you did but i understand why you did it and I want like my lawyer friend here to to defend you, and I want you to let him defend you in court. Hmm. Okay. Um. So the so the whole third, the last third of the book, and 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 you had you had talked, you had asked a little bit about like there is a perception of this book that's forwarded by Baldwin, I think in, in particular, but also some others that it reads more like a pamphlet than like a work of literature. So could you talk about that a little bit, and then I can yeah. talk about book three. So the the big like. Um, source for that is a collection of essays that Baldwin wrote called Notes on Notes of a Native Son, I believe it's called, or Notes on a Native Son. Um, That's the kind of OCR error that you might see in the ebook version <laughs> oh, of Native no. Son. <laughs> so. um, and it is like critiqued as quote mere protest, like protest fiction. Um, and Baldwin finds Bigger Thomas like stigmatizing and stereotypical uh i found a a uh, an article from the new york times in 2015 by ayana mathis and pankaj mishra where they talk about um the the way the protest novel becomes like a comforting aspect to a white audience because it confirms their fears rather than uh challenging their preconceptions you know Baldwin's case in particular being that we are all more complicated than that and there is like there is grace in us transgressing and finding commonality and this 
book stops short of that by just showing you the bad stuff and just having bigger be this like crime committing monster, which it sounds like you the your read is not necessarily that, but um I mean I definitely if if you're thinking about the actual actions that he yeah, that yeah, yeah, he yeah. takes and like the arc of his story and stuff. Then yeah, he is like pretty much exclusively doing that stuff. And if the if the book is trying to show you how a racist system responds to that, um, this book's definitely doing that. Like so, so, so Bigger did a lot of stuff. He he killed a white girl and then he arguably raped. I definitely raped and then killed a black girl and guess which guess which crime he is mainly on trial for. And then they trot out Bessie as well. He did this within the same 24 hours. So Mary is the what he's in trouble for. And then crime. And, yeah. yeah. And then Bessie is evidence. Hmm. Um, yeah. But, so but yeah, like it, it's doing that, but yeah, bigger also is, there, like I said, there is an inevitability to to the feeling of his actions. So if you're saying, yeah, like this character was created to do a bunch of bad stuff so we could rail against the system, then yeah, that's that. I, I can totally see that read of the book as well. And yes, and so the critique of it is like the book stops short of calling for action against the system, like in its execution, and instead mm-hmm. just provides a uh, a stereotype that is comforting to a fearful like white readership that is already like well i'm well, i'm worried about people from that other neighborhood and i i'm just so concerned by all the crime i see on tv and then like you read the book and you're like oh yeah i this is what it's like good good thing i have the beliefs i have um and i a lot of the critique of this book has has been from the like well that's not the goal like that's not helpful or it, or how helpful is that um there's a there's an article from 1986 by david bradley called on rereading native son and he goes through a couple rereads where he moves from like being turned off by uh how ac- quote unquote accurate a report of the times it is to kind of mourning that Wright felt this was a truthful depiction of the time um, and it actually generated a response from Wright's daughter, Julia, who says, um, we all have a bigger Thomas crouching within us, although there are those like Mr. Bradley who need to kill bigger on paper rather than recognize him as part of their own darkness. Mr. Bradley segregates bigger in the farthest corner of his mind, denies him, projects him outward and lynches him. But haven't we discovered that the outward projection of shadows within is the very foundation of segregationist thought? Um so Strong this, words. Yeah. Very well chosen word. It's like a, I, I expected that to be like an article and it's like two blazing paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It just like this is a a really controversial book It in a, in the scholarship of, of like sure. black fiction. Um, but in um in book three, I feel like is when when the the literature of it like kind of falls away and it becomes more like these long unbroken monologues like both in bigger's head but also from max in because it's in a courtroom scenario talking about yeah and and it's so i don't want people to take this the wrong way but the book that this brought to mind while i was reading it was the fountainhead 
and I am not going to say because there's any like relation between the ideologies, but the Fountainhead, which is an Ayn Rand novel, has the trappings of a novel insofar it has like a, a plot and characters and like things those characters ostensibly want, but a lot of the time, like those characters sort of motivations and the things that would make sense for them to do as, as fictional characters falls away. And you're just pretty clearly reading Ayn Rand's unfiltered thoughts on the, on the page in a way that I don't even want to say it reduces their effectiveness. I just want to say that you become aware that that is what you're reading. I had a similar, yeah, I had a similar reaction just a couple weeks ago when we were talking about, um, Kundera's, what was that Kundera book called? the unbearable lightness of being mm-hmm. where I was like, the parts that are really fun are the parts where I'm just hanging out with Kandera, the philosopher and all <laughs> the other, like the character stuff kind of doesn't like it. It feels like a different book. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, some of that is successful and, and some of that can read really not successfully in a book it, when, yeah. when it's just unbrought, when you're just like getting the author straight from the fire hose. In a yeah. Way. So I think, I think the most, uh, successful and most like memorable parts of it are talking about the weird sense of of agency that doing this stuff has given bigger. So this is all from book three. He's kind of contemplating stuff. Um, and yet out of it all, over and above all that had happened, impalpable but real, though there remained to him a queer sense of power. He had done this. He had brought all this about. In all of his life, these two murders were the most meaningful things that had ever happened to him. He was living truly and deeply, no matter what others might think, looking at him with their blind eyes. Never had he had the chance to live out the consequences of his actions. Never had his will been so free as in this night and day of fear and murder and flight. Um, but but the other the other side of that, I think it's mostly actually coming from Max as he is talking to Bigger and then as he is as he is talking in the courtroom because he's trying to he's trying to basically get Bigger life in prison instead of being killed because sure. the media and also the police have they've played up because the body was destroyed. They are basically saying, oh, well, obviously he raped and killed a white girl. And like was and, destroying that evidence for yeah okay and it, it's that you know that has a a lot of significance because you know that 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 fear that 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 supposition that that black men just wanted to rape and take quote unquote our women yeah that was that. always a, a huge 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 thing especially in the in the south but really you know anywhere and it's it's really telling that. Of all the stuff that Bigger actually did, the thing that the state's attorney who is prosecuting him chooses to hit on over and over is he raped this white woman. Which is untrue. And yet, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's, and it's all really complicated. Like, he, yeah. If he had not been interrupted, then maybe it would have happened. I don't know. But. Yeah, that's the of all the of all the crimes at at issue here. That's the one that gets brought up over and over, and that's the one that like there are there are riots about this that are upset about hmm. you know a, a black man killing and and ostensibly raping a white woman like that that that's what the public is upset about. That's what the the police is like fanning the flames of like that that is. That is why the goal is to have him executed, to make him like the symbol of, you know, of why black folks need to know their place. Basically, well, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a northern 
court version of a lynching is what it sounds like right yeah. it's yeah yeah that's that then that's kind of how it's presented but yeah. um uh so when max says stuff like um he's talking to bigger he says bigger the people who hate you feel just as you feel only they're on the other side of the fence you're black but that's only a part of it you're being black as i told you before makes it easy for them to single you out why do they do that they want the things of life just as you did and they're not particular about how they get them they hire people and they don't pay them enough they take what people own and build up power. They rule and regulate life. They have things arranged so that they can do those things and the people can't fight back. They do that to black people more than others because they say that black people are inferior, but bigger. They say that all people who work are inferior and the rich people don't want to change things. They'll lose too much, but deep down in them, they feel like you feel bigger and in order to keep what they've got. They make themselves believe that men who work are not quite human. They do like you did bigger when you refuse to feel sorry for Mary but on both sides, men want to live. Men are fighting for life. Who will win? Well, the side that feels life most, the side with the most humanity and the most men. Um, dude, so can you can you kind of hear what I'm? Oh, totally. Talking it's about like, that's in, that, just, in that bit, like it's that's it's a rousing a, stump speech, is what yeah, that and is. it's it's making a broader point that I get. It, it does it does feel a little strange coming out of the mouth of a of a like a white lawyer, you know? Like it yes. doesn't. If the job of the lawyer is to like get bigger a reduced sentence, then probably a lot of like soapboxy stuff he gets up and says during his his pages and pages of of monologue right at the end there. I don't think he probably would have said it, but no, it reminds me of um of some of the passages in Invisible Man where the the protagonist, the black protagonist of that book, is like brought into a communist movement in New York and like asked to give a bunch of speeches and soapbox to to help the movement but then of course the movement kind of betrays him and and things like that um but it it's put in a different person's mouth it is i can't tell if from just you reading it and based on what we've talked about today like whether or not right buys that and, when, right? and that's I a mean, debatable question. I'm, I'm something sure. I was su- surprised about because because one of the and this will be the last thing I guess we talk about is one of, one of the things that the book did that I was surprised to see it doing was actually drawing a lot of parallels between the plight of uh, black folks in America and the plight of like workers in yeah. America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's one of the reasons why the Communist Party figures so heavily in this in this book is. Um, this is Max again. I'm defending this boy because I'm convinced that men like you made him what he is. He's, he's trying to blame the communist for his crime was a natural reaction for him. He had heard men like you lie about the communists so much that he believed them. If I can make the people of this country understand why this boy acted like he did, I'll be doing more than defending him. And yeah, it, it's, it's trying to make this point where you know rich rich people or you know employers management whatever you want to call them are pitting people with shared interests uh poor whites yep poor working whites and black people in this case um pitting them against each other and then benefiting i was at i was at Um, at an event last weekend where that was the thesis well and that's been the the, yeah yeah that's and that's been the basis of a lot of i think political movements and coalitions especially on on the left has been trying to say you know we we do have like a, a lot of our problems are the same and there are people who who race bait and who 
try to divide to like take advantage of that and we'd have to stop letting them like how where how you feel about that is is up to you but that that's where right is coming down um here's another passage and rich white people were not so hard on negroes it was the poor whites who hated negroes they hated negroes because they didn't have their share of the money yep and then from the uh how bigger was born bit of the book so this this is from right directly um, I made the discovery that Bigger Thomas was not black all the time. And that he's talk- he, this is in the context of these are all the Bigger Thomases I have met in my life who came oh, together sure. to form this composite character. Um, he was white, too, and there were literally millions of him everywhere. The extension of my sense of the personality of Bigger was the pivot of my life. It altered the complexion of my existence. I became conscious at first dimly and then later on with increasing clarity and conviction of a vast muddied pool of human life in America. It was as though I had put on a pair of spectacles whose power was that of an X-ray enabling me to see deeper into the lives of men. Whenever I picked up a newspaper, I no longer feel that I was reading of the doings of whites alone. Negroes are rarely mentioned in the press unless they have committed some crime. But of a complex struggle for life going on in my country, a struggle in which I was involved, I sensed, too, that the southern scheme of oppression was but an appendage of a far vaster and in many respects more ruthless and impersonal commodity profit machine. Yeah. Yep. So very clearly drawing parallels between the the labor movement and and Jim Crow and, and... Racism in America. So there you there there you go. That, that that's that sounds I like think the this book. W- yeah, like the the book is is worth reading. I think it it made me I don't know. It it, it comes at things from a sl- just a slightly different angle than than what I'm used to coming at these issues from. Like it does tackle stuff like systemic racism and and redlining and and some um things I was kind of, some concepts I was already kind of familiar with, but the how explicitly right draws the parallels between poor blacks and poor whites and how they're kind of set up in opposition to each other, even though they have a lot of shared interests. Like that was, that was something I hadn't seen. I mean, I, I'd of course like heard of it and seen it articulated, but right had a way of, of bringing it up, especially in the context of like red scare, the red scare movement and like anti-communism in America that I, oh, I don't yeah. think I'd, I'd encountered that specific like angle on it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's again, like to the, it can perhaps be a critique, but maybe it's also an effective, a thing the book is doing effectively is that it's just kind of cutting right to the argument in some spots mm-hmm. um, where, you know, folks like Baldwin and Baldwin wrote his critique of it, like his first big critique of it when he was like 24. And there's an element of like, you're the guy who came before me. Here's what I think about you as I move on to the stuff that I would like to do. Sure. Um, sure. That I, I've seen allusions to in the scholarship and and I think is worth thinking about as you go off to read that. Well, thanks for reading the book, Andrew, and tell me all about it. I'm glad that you did that. You're welcome. Um, if folks have read this book or have read... Um, any of Wright's other work and have some thoughts they want to share, they can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com or hit us up on social media. That's twitter.com slash overduepod and facebook.com slash overduepod. Thanks to Dion, Hillary, Daniel, Tori, Sonia, Starfish Tick, Sean, Emma, Sam, Erica, Alejandra, Adam, and a couple more for reaching out over the past week. Makes us feel good. Helps other people see the show on the internet. 
Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where else can they go on the internet? They can go on the internet to OverduePodcast.com, which is an internet website. Up there, we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and our RSS feed. You can also find us on Stitcher and Spotify, among some other places. If you listen to us in Apple Podcasts slash iTunes, do rate and review us. It makes us feel good. It helps people find the show. helps people know that you think the show is a real good one. Um well, this is happening. Uh, if you go to <laughs> patreon.com slash overdue pod, you can support the show financially and put books on our list. Um, like we've said a few times, that list is like pretty long and weird. I think we're still working through like the last few recommendations we got at 2017. So if there is a lag, please like forgive us that. Um, we're, we, we are, are pretty yeah. well equipped to like let you know where you are in the list at this point. We've been auditing it for the last couple of months, so we yeah. are on the case. Yeah, um, next we're going to get there. I am talking about uh, how to win friends and influence people. I am excited <laughs> for you to finally get some friends. Yeah. And I'm also excited to be influenced by you. There's some wild stuff in this <laughs> book that I'm excited <laughs> to talk about. Uh, so should be a little in. should be a bit lighter of a of a read. I'll 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 a hazard. Yeah, tune in tune in for that next week. All right, everybody. As always, thank you so much for listening. And until we talk to you next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.